Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. We're back with Tackling the Taboo. Yay, fun. (laughs) Yes, and this one I'm really excited about because we've been plotting it for (laughs) weeks, months, maybe via text and Marco Polo messages in light of what I believe is mutual. I don't know if it's mutual obsession and horror. (laughs) Yes, it's mutual. (laughs) Okay. Over a Netflix reality show. I'm so embarrassed by this. Called The Ultimatum, Queer Love. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we might be a little late to this conversation, but true, I true. really want to have it. <laughs> I agree. And I think we need to continue this conversation beyond Pride Month when it came out, because it came out yes. early June, I think. So if you haven't seen the series or even heard of it, don't worry. We will not spoil it for you. Mainly what it did for us was bring to light just how entrenched so many of us are, like maybe all of us are in this relationship mythology that leaves us so unhappy and dissatisfied Mm -hmm. and kind of lost in our romantic relationships. And like the very thing that we're told will make us feel happy and complete. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of confusing for our brains and our hearts. So we're going to identify some of those myths how they're created, more like how they're perpetuated by the media we consume and the stories we tell ourselves, and what we humbly would like to offer in response to these troubling ideas that often break our hearts and disappoint us. So Mm -hmm. we've got to start with talking about the ultimatum for a second. So Ashley, do you want to fill our listeners in on this bizarre show? Yes. So... I did not realize there were so many reality competition shows out there. They're not my preferred genre, but you got me hooked on The Ultimatum. And I'm so glad you did. (laughs) It was a a really fun diversion for about a week of my life. (laughs) (laughs) You have to watch it fast. There's no way not to. (laughs) Exactly. And then there's all of the like podcasts out there analyzing the show and articles and stuff. So I, you know, it was a it was a good diversion for a couple of days there. So for those who haven't seen it, I will try to explain it. It's a little it's difficult (laughs) because the premise of the ultimatum is just so bizarre. So there were five or six queer couples where one partner in the couple had issued an ultimatum with the other, basically saying, marry me or I'm ending it. And they dragged them on this show basically to test that (laughs) ultimatum, which not exactly a healthy way to start any marriage, but okay, Mm -hmm. I'll go with it. So over the course of the season, the couples switched around with each other and dated each other and then did a three-week pretend marriage with someone other than their original partner, I guess, to to have something to compare a, a marriage to their original partner. I'm not really sure. Because then they switched back to their original partner and did another three-week pretend marriage. And then at the end, they had to decide either marry their original partner or end the relationship. <laughs> what? <laughs> it is such a wild premise, but it was very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yep. What is your attachment style is really what it was for me. What oh, kind of attachment Lord. style do I have with people? <laughs> yes. So much anxious avoidant. <laughs> so much. So much. I didn't see any secure attachment at all. No. Really. <laughs> they wouldn't be on a show like that if they were securely attached. <laughs> right. Right. So as you were saying, Katie, while I was watching the show, I was also really struck by some of our culture's ideas about marriage and partnership that are 
in a lot of ways, very problematic and dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And I think overall, there was just something about the couples who were all relatively young, queer and or non-binary juxtaposed with the institution of monogamous marriage, which is historically patriarchal and oppressive. That all made me think that it's probably time to re-examine some of the ideas that we hold as a culture about marriage and partnership. Why did these people go on this show? That is what I could not figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the cynical answer is like to get famous, to start an OnlyFans, which some of them have gone on to do. At least one yeah, has gone on to but do. But at the cost of their relationships. Yes. Right. Yes. So, okay. So much to let's discuss. Do it. So uh-huh. much. Okay. Let's start by diving into this idea of looking for the one because yes. this is the premise that you're going to encounter on any of these dating, relationship, competition, reality TV shows. <laughs> yes. There are so many. So we've got The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, which mm-hmm. was the first. We've got Love is Blind, which I think came out during the pandemic, the first season. I don't know if you've seen any of those. No, uh, I haven't watched that good one. Good for you. And um, <laughs> and then there's The Ultimatum, which did start with straight couples. The first season mm-hmm. are straight couples, and then they did queer couples for the next one, thinking that it would be, like, I don't know, groundbreaking, which it was in some ways, but also... Not in others, just yeah. just in the way that you described. So everybody says that they're like looking for their their person or their soulmate or their best friend on these shows. And if you go back to our episode number forty two, which was a long time ago, that we're now in seventy five. Wow. But we did one on soulmates and soul families, and we touched on this a little bit because we talked about how no matter what you call these types of connections, because I think you and I have different language. Mm -hmm. We both believe that we have more than one person with whom we're going to feel that deep kind of soul recognition who could be a long-term partner. And so what I think people actually mean when they say, I'm looking for the one, is I want to find someone I connect with deeply who is ready to make a commitment to me, preferably in the form of marriage, Mm -hmm. and as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. I think you're right, yeah. That's the narrative that these shows perpetuate. And like the ultimate goal is marriage. You know, the, the bachelor and the bachelorette often end in marriage proposals after like six weeks. I don't know how long mm-hmm. those shows go on. Love is blind requires a proposal for the two people to even see each other in person. Huh. <laughs> I'd have to go into the premise, but I'll, I'll skip it. And then there's like married at first sight, which has two people who've never even spoken to each other marry one another before they even know the other person's name or they meet at the altar. Okay. So it's wild. It just gets (laughs) more and more wild. So they all differ on the particular path, but they're like all the equivalent to a race to the altar. Like once you've Mm -hmm. found someone, you better lock that in right now. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So while researching (laughs) this episode, (laughs) it's just like, it's laughable. It's like to the altar. more hilarious saying it out loud than like preparing for the episode. It's just so yeah. absurd. <laughs> it is. Well, the show that I have the most experience with is The Bachelor and The Bachelorette franchise because I was in my teens, basically, when those shows came out. And I looked it up while researching. The Bachelor debuted in March 2002. 
Oh my that gosh. Was the spring semester of my senior year of high school. And The Bachelorette came out the following year. And I, I remember, remember that one. Yeah, because I was living in the dorms my first my freshman year of college and my girlfriends and I would like we had a standing appointment to watch The Bachelorette. We were all very invested in who Trista was going to choose. <laughs> Still married, by the way. <laughs> they are still married. I don't know what that says, but I remember thinking how like feminist it was that we were that the girl got her turn now. It wasn't right. just about girls, you know, vying for the attention of a man. It was about this one was all about men vying for the attention of a woman. And I remember thinking that was feminism. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> was a long time ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. 21 years, <laughs> in fact. So as you can imagine, it is hard to find accurate or current statistics about Bachelor Nation, which is what the franchise is called, which I've recently learned. But I've seen some numbers floated online, like the average Bachelor relationship lasts three months and 16 days after the show, which is pretty short. And only about two thirds of the seasons of either The Bachelor or The Bachelorette end with a proposal. And of the ones that do, only a handful have actually led to marriage. So the whole thing is really such a farce. (laughs) And I know, what can we expect? It's just a reality TV series, right? But this show, like I just said, has over 20 years of influence on our culture. And its themes aren't new. You Just like you said, finding the one, marriage being on a pedestal, and also dating as this zero-sum game that turns people of your own gender into competition. Like, that is not a new idea. I stopped watching The Bachelor after the first few seasons, but the seasons I did watch were during some of my most formative years. And as a young adult, I never questioned these ideas, things like marriage is the end goal or the concept of dating, quote, for the right reasons, which I had to laugh because this came up on the mm-hmm. ultimatum as well. And I guess they what they mean by that, the only right reason is dating to find a marriage partner, not not just dating for fun or for friendship or for sex. So let's go back to the one. What are some of the problems with The one, because isn't it such a nice romantic idea, Katie, that there's one person out there who completes me or fulfills all my romantic and relational needs? (laughs) Sounds lovely. (laughs) The funny thing is these shows actually disrupt this premise because oftentimes people are falling in love with multiple people. (laughs) Yes, that's (laughs) true. More than one person. So Mm -hmm. but you gotta choose who's really, really the real one. The real one. Yeah, it's like Mm -hmm. fantasy thinking, which I am just as susceptible to as the next person. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm very heart-based, as we've talked about in the show, Cancers. Um, And I have to, like, constantly remember to get my head involved. So I wanted to talk about the influence of love hormones for a second because they are so real and so powerful. And I feel like shows like The Bachelor and Bachelorette create the conditions for them to kick in. Oh, yeah. They create, like, these romantic destination dates that require no participation from the people who are in them. Oh, yeah. And there's like, yeah, they just show up. And then there's like fantasy suites and luxurious hotels and lots and lots of alcohol. Mm -hmm. So everyone's inhibitions are down. And, you know, if you've ever fallen in love with anyone, it's like such a rush of that dopamine norepinephrine cocktail that like feels amazing and also totally disorienting at the Mm -hmm. same time. 
like you're not sleeping usually or eating as much, but it's, it's only a short term thing. It's not sustainable for our bodies and our brains to remain in that heightened state. And so we all know this logically, but brain chemistry is so powerful. And when we have deep, intense emotions, it's so normal to attach a story to them because it helps us make sense of what's happening, even if it's not true. That's any emotion. But I think with falling in love, it's like, or feeling attraction or crushing, it's easy to connect those feelings to the story of this is my person. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm having this experience, not I'm having brain chemistry that's making me feel a certain way. You know, that's not as romantic <laughs> as, nope. the, as the story. <laughs> so the statistic that you cited about the length of the average bachelor relationship is so interesting to me because I don't know if this is actually true, but it feels true. My intuitive told me that people can only maintain like a mask for about four months, meaning like you can only represent a curated version of yourself to another person for a limited period of time. That makes sense. And that may not be accurate in terms of the actual timing, but it's true. We put our best selves forward at the beginning of a relationship. And then as we settle in, especially if we're spending more time together, conflict comes up, we start showing our real selves, our full selves, and then things get messier and a lot more real. So I'm not surprised that that combination of like the hormones, you know, going away and then stuff getting real post show that that three to four month mark is when things end for a lot of people. Yeah. That actually yeah. makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Matt and I celebrated 10 years of marriage this year. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I honestly, I can say that we feel, we feel solid. And a big part of that is because we recognize that we are not each other's one. Like we're not each yeah. other's everything. And that we give each other freedom and independence to be in connection with other people who help round us out as people. And that requires a lot of inner security and trust in each other. And sometimes it means working through tough feelings. But it's also so freeing to live in the truth that while we are deeply committed to each other, that doesn't mean that we're capable of or should be capable of fulfilling one another's every single need. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this was your case in college, but were there ever couples who were like always together who like, yes, would just never. Yeah. So there was this one couple yes. freshman year. They ate every single meal together, just the two of them in the dining hall. Like they were always there. And I rarely saw one without the other. And I think they're married now, but I think we romanticize <laughs> this as sweet or something, you know, mm-hmm. like making someone else your everything, but it's a sign of enmeshment that we can't distinguish who we are from the person we're in relationship with. And, you know, I know couples who who rarely travel without the other or don't have a life outside of their partner period. And I just have to think that that leads to a loss of self or one or both is like constantly capitulating to the other for that sake of constant togetherness. So mm-hmm. I've only touched the surface here. <laughs> like what's wrong with this narrative of finding the one? So what have you got? What's What's wrong with this romantic idea? As you were talking, I was just thinking about a conversation I was having with someone a couple days ago. She went on a girl's trip with all four of her sisters, and one of her sisters brought her husband. What? No. (laughs) Yes. And these women are all in their, like, 50s, 60s, 70s, and... And this husband just like tagged along for everything. And she was like, why did she bring him? I don't understand. And I just talk about 
<laughs> enmeshment. <laughs> yeah, like, did both of them want him there? Did he want to be there? Did right. she or what's going on? That sounds miserable. It does. I had the same questions. <laughs> I don't know. But something that is related to finding the one, which I want to talk about, is something that people say often. I only want to get married once. I heard that a lot growing up, especially in the church. I'm sure I said it myself. I even heard it come up on the ultimatum, which is what kind of shocked me, honestly. I understand where people are coming from with this idea, but as someone who is divorced, I find it incredibly stigmatizing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The implication is that divorce is something to fear or avoid at all costs or something to see as shameful or unfortunate. And I chose my divorce. And yes, that chapter of my life was painful and complicated. And divorce can be very sad. But it was absolutely a decision that changed my life for the better. Yes. And I don't want to get us off topic, but that's pretty much what I hear people say about their abortion experiences. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Exactly. We'll get we'll get around to that, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> I see divorce as a blessing that affirms our freedom and bodily autonomy. So, yes, much mm-hmm. like abortion. <laughs> <laughs> so digging into the history here for a minute, the right to a no-fault divorce, I think people don't realize that that's a pretty recent thing where Mm. a couple can end a marriage for any reason. That was only enacted nationwide in the United States in 1970. And before that, it was just this patchwork of laws all over the country. Women in particular who wanted or needed a divorce were subject to their state's laws and had to either find a way to leave their state and establish residency somewhere more permissive like Nevada or have a reason that their state found to be, quote, legitimate. Sounds very familiar, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. We're seeing this exact same legal framework applied to abortion right now. And we're also hearing of states, I cannot even believe this, that want to end no-fault divorce or at least make it harder for people to get divorced. Mm-hmm. This is not a coincidence at no. all. You know, marriage has historically been used as a mechanism for those who uphold white patriarchy to preserve and concentrate wealth and power. So bodily autonomy, whether it's the right to divorce or the right to end a pregnancy, is a threat to that patriarchy. So, yes, pro-abortion, pro-divorce. We need shirts that say both of those things. I know. And I think my most generous interpretation of what people mean when they say they only want to get married once is that they hope their partnership with the person they choose stays healthy and strong and loving over the course of their lifetime, which that's a, those are beautiful goals to work toward, but life can be long, especially (laughs) as the average lifespan increases. We're talking about marriages that could potentially last 50, 60, 70 years. I am not the same person I was five years ago. Who am I going to be in 50 Mm -hmm. years? I have no idea. So much life happens in those years. And to me, this begs the question, what is a successful marriage? Is the only successful marriage one that remains intact until one person dies, regardless of how the individuals felt or functioned inside that marriage? You know, could we open our minds at least a little to other ways that a marriage can be successful? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I thought of this when I was reading the account on Instagram, Rising Woman, who was talking about looking for a partner. And she said, 
when you find a person who feels like the one we want to put the work in with. Mm, and I really mm-hmm. liked that frame. Um, and how about a successful marriage is one in which the people involved together create a safe container for mm-hmm. that ongoing evolution and growth, like both individually and collectively. Cause that feels right to me, even if that yes. means the relationship does come to an end eventually, because it is about one another's becoming and supporting mm-hmm. that, like regardless of what it means for their relationship. And though I haven't been divorced, I know that I've had plenty of relationships of all kinds that have come to an end, ones that I thought were lifelong. Mm-hmm. I would have sworn were lifelong commitments. And even though that's been painful, I can look back and have a lot of gratitude for what I learned from those experiences and how important they were for my growth. And I'd like to think for that person too. And like, there's a lot of fun too, and joy and beauty and all of those beautiful parts of the relationship. They're still there, even though we're not in relationship anymore. And I think that whole trope of people come into your life for a reason, a season or a lifetime, it definitely feels true for me. And that doesn't mean that those relationships were unsuccessful. It means they served their purpose and I can choose to have gratitude for them. Absolutely. And the more I think about it, even the concept of a successful marriage is just so binary. It's either success or failure, but that's not the reality of it. Why can't we just let relationships be what they are, which is what you just described, a mix of everything. And sometimes they end. And And sometimes failure is okay. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Sometimes failure is preferable. (laughs) Maybe we should do one just about failing. Like, like just failure in general as a topic could be a really yeah. interesting podcast episode. I kind of, I think we did. When did we? Oh. I think we have. We need to go back in the archives. So a lot, a lot of this tackling the taboo series really has been revisiting concepts that we talked about six, seven years ago, and thinking about how our perspectives have changed. So I, I feel like we've done a failure episode. But I could That's be making true. that up. But no, we should it go sounds back and true. And it sounds see. true. I think you're right. But maybe, yeah, maybe it's a revisit one for sure. Yeah. I've failed a lot since then. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, we should do that. Okay. So before we move on from the myth of the one, while we were developing the notes and outline for this episode, I had a song stuck in my head. <laughs> Precious Illusions by Alanis Morissette. Do you know that song? I had to look it up, but I I love Alanis Morissette. So it's funny to me that I was obsessed with this song in 2002, the same year that The Bachelor came out. <laughs> <laughs> and I still know some of the lyrics. I just want to share a couple lyrics because I think this just explains a lot for me. <laughs> so she says, you'll rescue me, right? In the exact same way they never did. I'll be happy, right? When your healing powers kick in, you'll complete me, right? Then my life can finally begin. I'll be worthy, right? Only when you realize the gem I am. Yes. And of course, that's all sarcastic. I mean, the name of the song is Precious Illusions. But oh, Alanis, empowering millennial women and fighting the patriarchy everywhere. We appreciate you. <laughs> we so do. It's such a great title, Precious Illusions. Mm-hmm. That's such a great title because those myths and their abstract and the fantasies we create in our minds, like we can get really attached to them. Yes. Really attached. But in the end, you know, they are just that. Illusions that come crashing mm-hmm. down. <laughs> so 
<laughs> okay. For our next myth, we're going to talk about some of the assumptions we make about what marriage means. That's mm-hmm. loaded. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Where should we start? Let's see. Let's start with marriage as the only legitimate partnership. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. This is reflected in our laws, our churches, and also just in how we value the relationships of others in our communities. I know I mentioned earlier that as a young adult, I was solidly on board the marriage conveyor belt. You know, you date to find a partner. And then when you find him, because it was always a him, you get married, have kids, live happily ever after. That's about it. Mm -hmm. If you'd been living together or been dating for a certain amount of time, marriage was the inevitable and only and correct next step. And living in the South, I don't know about you. I knew a lot of people who got married immediately after college. Like whoever Mm -hmm. they were dating in college, they sent out wedding invitations right after graduation. Yep. (laughs) Yes. And then there was another wave of weddings when I was around 25, 26. And Mm -hmm. I remember being with my boyfriend at that time and thinking, We've been together long enough. We've been together longer than some of the people that are getting married right now. It's time to just check the marriage box. All our friends are doing it. And it felt like all around us, people were making their relationships, quote, legitimate in a way Mm. that ours wasn't, even though we were living together. When we visited our parents' homes, we still had to sleep in separate bedrooms. We were expected to spend our holidays separate from each other with our respective families. There was a lot of, I don't know, I still felt like a child in a lot of ways. Even just going from the term boyfriend to husband felt more real and legitimate. And so looking back, I know there was a part of me that just wanted to be seen as an adult, to have my life choices legitimized, that I rushed into marriage with my first husband as a shortcut to that. I didn't really stop to think about what I wanted my life to look like long term, what I wanted out of life, what I needed or deserved in a partnership and what getting married was going to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And another illusion for like parents and others that if you're not married, that you're not sleeping together. Right. <laughs> Something upholding that. Come on. Uh, so much of this has to do with sex too, which. Yeah. We'll touch on in this episode. But I was just thinking, I remember in my mind that getting married at 25 seemed like waiting. I don't yes. know. Yes. That seemed like old, mature. Yep. Not not old, but mature. Like, oh, when I'm 25, I will be ready to get married. Yes. And then I'm watching the ultimatum and one of the contestants was, was she 25, 26? Or was she younger? Somewhere around there. And she was like pushing so hard to get married. And I kept yelling at the TV, you are such a baby. (laughs) You don't know. I feel like that too. I'm like, why is this so important to you? Yes, the same question. But yet it was to me also. So I understand. Yeah, I get it. That was my reality. Even though I didn't get married till I was about to turn 30. I had two partners that I was on the marriage train with, or I thought I was, one in college who I dated for four years, and then one in graduate school. We dated for two, and it just felt like a logical thing, like especially Mm -hmm. with the second one, because I was done with school. I had a job. We were living together. So therefore, the next step was to get married. It was just Mm -hmm. that conveyor belt, you know, like you said. I used to wonder if maybe I wouldn't have gotten married the first time if I hadn't felt so pressured to fit into that marriage ideal. Because when we think of marriage as the only legitimate partnership, it becomes this exclusive club where people are either 
in it or outside of it. And our laws do treat marriage that way. There are rights and privileges reserved for people who are legally married. That's one of the reasons that the fight for marriage equality was so important. But there are so many other ways to be committed to someone else that are just as valid and should be treated that way, at the very least, by our families and friends. (laughs) You know? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the biggest critiques, as you know, of the marriage equality movement is that it reinforced the troubling idea that monogamous marriage is the ideal for everyone. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Another myth connected to this, to marriage, is that it necessitates intertwining your life at every level with this person Mm -hmm. or that doing so is an indicator of your relationship health or that you're supposed to want to do all of these things with your partner. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Or their relationship. Yes. You know, things like living together, sleeping together figuratively and literally, eating together, combining finances, having the same group of friends and interests, and generally just doing everything with your partner almost exclusively so. Mm -hmm. And like having a separate life in any sense is often treated with suspicion by other people. Yeah, like they don't get it. And I, or mm-hmm. it's like you must have a secret from your partner if you're doing something separate. And I can remember, I think it was five years ago, I went on my first solo retreat at the encouragement and insistence of Matt <laughs> to go alone. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, please, please do this for yourself. And some of my straight married women friends were so perplexed by this. Like, how did you arrange this? Why is this important to you? Like, yeah. what is this all about? And I'm like, time alone? <laughs> Why is do this I not need to something you also it? want? I know. Yes. It was so it was so strange. I feel like in a lot of ways I've like maybe taught some of these people that you can push up against some of these norms. Yeah. I don't know. But the thing is we all figure out ways to make our marriages work if that's what we want to make them work, depending on our circumstances, you know? So some examples from my life. Most of the time I go to bed way before Matt does. And over time I've gotten used to and learned that I have to fall asleep by myself. So if I'm up late for some reason, I get home late, I just sleep in the guest room because I need to fall asleep by myself. Mm. Um, we do our own laundry separately. I don't like doing laundry together. We go on Same. trips. Yeah. We go on trips without each other regularly. And these are not indicators that we're growing apart or that there's dysfunction. It means that we know ourselves very well and we're secure in ourselves and in each other to give each other plenty of space and freedom. Mm-hmm. Marriage is freedom. I should start saying that. (laughs) And I'm also learning that there are multiple marriages within a single marriage. This is not a new concept. Lots of people have talked about this, but it's definitely been my experience that when things in our lives shift, we almost have to recreate our relationship norms, like not necessarily from scratch, but sometimes it's been a total overhaul. Like Mm -hmm. we've had to reassess where are we right now? Where do we need to adjust Like, what are our priorities? And as Sam gets older, I see that we are each rediscovering our own individual freedom and interests more and more just because it's easier and easier for one of us to be with her rather than like having to tag team all the time. Yes. (laughs) And I know you're, you're gonna, you're gonna get out of it. I promise. We are rounding. Yes. We are rounding the bend. I can see it. You are so close. Yes. You're getting there. And that space and exploration keep our relationship interesting because we're each growing and and going out into the world and having experiences that we then want to come back to share with each other. 
I think that is such a good point about marriage shifting and changing that it's like almost totally different marriages over time. Pat and I will be married eight years this October. And I would say that we've already had two major marriage shifts. This is probably common for a lot of folks that have kids. There was our pre-kid marriage that looked totally different Mm -hmm. (laughs) than it did after becoming co-parents. And now I would say we're we're going through another shift. Uh, there's been a lot of renegotiation and relearning each other as we both have shifted careers and are doing a lot of traveling as a family in our camper for extended periods of time. And I was thinking about it. Our relationship even looks different on the road than it does at home. Now, it's just part of the different needs we have while we're traveling mm-hmm. versus when we're in our in our house. And I just want to say I love talking about this stuff. I learned so much from talking with people about their marriages, and I wish it was something that people did more, but in a serious way, not that trope of just sitting around and trash talking your spouse. You know, there's a lot of that Mm -hmm. sort of mommy wine culture of sitting around and talking about how dumb your husband is. And I just that's really toxic. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I do wish we could talk more openly about our experiences within our marriage. Because I don't know if this has happened to you, but have you ever had a conflict with your partner and you're kind of ashamed of it or scared to tell your friends about it because they might judge you or you're afraid it means your relationship isn't healthy or something. And mm-hmm. then when you finally do tell someone, they're like, oh yeah, we've been through that. <laughs> we we deal with that too. That's totally normal. Mm-hmm. It's always such a relief, you know? Or... Maybe you learn, like I have, that so many of my assumptions about marriage over the years and other people's marriages have been totally wrong. For instance, I know people in very healthy, open marriages. I know married people who have two entirely separate bedrooms and they sleep in the same bed only when they feel like it. And like one invites the other over to their bed for the night. I know married people who share all their finances and some who share none of their finances and both ways work. I know people who are way better friends with each other after a divorce than they were when they were still married. And I know couples who prioritize having a lot of sex and some who don't. And it's all fine. (laughs) That's been my major takeaway. It's all fine. It's all fine. And as you were talking about, you know, the conflict and bringing it to someone, I was actually thinking of something different, which is someone was openly sharing about their marriage and dysfunction. And I had to say to this person, I do not have an equivalent to what you uh, are talking about. That's and helpful like, too. And, and realizing that having a dysfunctional relationship or a bad relationship is not a reflection on your self-worth as a person no. or even your partner. It just mean it might mean that it's a bad match. So just advocating in general for people to find someone they feel like they can be vulnerable about and what's going on in your relationship. Because without the perspective of other people, you really don't have a sense of like what's normal and what isn't, you know? So it could be the reverse is also yeah. true. Just putting that out there. As you were talking, I remembered I was about 26 and I was going to Al-Anon meetings all the time. And my first husband was in an active phase of addiction and it was really difficult. And I remember a woman who'd been married 40 or 50 years to her alcoholic spouse. And she came up to me after a, a meeting and said, honey, you are just too young 
to saddle yourself to this for the rest of your life. And if I could go back and do things differently, I might have made way different choices. And you are at a, at a point in your life where you, you can get out of this. Mm, Wow. And powerful. And it all comes from just opening up and sharing. And that wasn't the reason, but it was definitely a, a bit of a wake up call because all I really knew from examples in my life and family were mm. the long suffering spouse that you stay. Yeah. Yeah. You stay yeah. at all costs. And we didn't have kids yet. And, um, there was a, there was a very clear window of I can, I can have a different life. And, you know, so <laughs> just, just putting that out there. <laughs> Right. And it goes back to, you know, the goal isn't to maintain relationship no matter what. It's about, is this a relationship that we both want to be in and is healthy for us more or less? Mm -hmm. And are we actively working on it? You know, it's, it's tricky and nuanced and we're all complicated, but I really appreciate you sharing that, um, with us, you know, and, and that you were open to hearing that because I think probably at different stages, you wouldn't have been open to somebody. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. When people yeah. voiced uh, concerns when I was engaged, I absolutely could not hear it. You know, it's just right. you got to. Yeah, you got to be open and ready and in a place where you can receive it. And yeah, you know, marriage is it's complicated. <laughs> it is. And it points to why these rules that we have mm-hmm. just really don't work and why we need to yep. more or less throw them out the window. And Let's just talk about, you know, relatively healthy relationships. Everybody gets to decide for themselves what marriage is for them. And at the same time, it would be so wonderful if we offered more societal support for people who are being in intimate partnerships in different ways, getting back to the whole idea that like marriage is the only legitimate partnership that you can have. And I think we should be celebrating all of the people, whether or not they're talking about it, who are figuring out ways to stay in healthy relationships, even if that bumps up against these traditions, like i.e. oppressive structures that we've talked <laughs> <Yes>. about, <laughs> you know. And so I wanted to talk for a minute just to celebrate some more well-known people like Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist, if you follow her on Instagram, and Martha Beck, who's a really famous coach, and Lindy West, who wrote Shrill. For mm-hmm. talking openly about being in polyamorous relationships. Um, and you know, I was thinking about the first time someone told me that they were polyamorous. I think I was about 25 when I thought I was so smart. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I had such a strong reaction to the idea because it flew in the face of everything that we're taught about romantic relationships and marriage. Like this person was married also. And like, looking back, I see how entrenched I was in that mindset. And I think we collectively have such a long way to go in unpacking compulsory monogamy. Yeah. So kudos to these people for being brave enough to share about their intimate lives so that we can all learn and expand our understanding of what loving relationships can look like. Oh, and I shared this with you. Janelle Monae has a track on, Mm -hmm. I think they're, I think they use they, them now. On their newest album that touches on their own polyamorous relationships. It's a play on that classic song, I Only Have Eyes for Two. And it's, I just love that. <laughs> more of that, I, please. Yes. Uh, more Janelle Monet in general, please. Uh, in general, yes. <laughs> yeah. So polyamory, it's just such a taboo. It takes a lot of guts for people to be open about it. And our culture is so fixated on sex that polyamory or having an open marriage becomes automatically conflated with just sleeping around, basically. It's like, oh, you're poly because you want to cheat on your spouse. <laughs> like, that's what, that's the assumption people make, which 
is fine if if a focus on sex is what folks want, but that is not what everybody's in it for. One of my friends says that being poly has very little to do with sex for her and her husband. They date other people to take the pressure off of trying to be everything to each other. And it's just what works for them. And sex with other people isn't off the table, but it's not the focus. And I just think it would be really interesting to have more expansive conversations about polyamory, open marriages, what it all is, just these examples out there of what what people do in real life, you know? And it's so similar to the conversations earlier about queerness and like people get real focused on like, what does sex between women mean? Yeah. Right? Rather than yes. the, these are relationships that require talking and communication and all the mm-hmm. other parts of relationship, like our fixation on sex, like you were saying, we just have so much collective work to do around this yes. session that we have. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. And I feel like this conversation dovetails nicely into the last myth that we're going to talk about, which is that romantic love which is often conflated with sexual love, Mm -hmm. is more important than platonic love. And related that the love we get from a single individual person is more important than the love we receive in community. Mm. And this brings us back to where we started, the idea of the one. And this concept suggests that for a relationship to be truly important to us, there must be exclusivity Mm -hmm. and you must make a lifelong commitment in the form of marriage and all the baggage that comes with that, being sexually intimate, for example, These expectations put so much pressure on our partners to be our everything and so much pressure on ourselves to find everything we need relationally with a single person or else like abdicate our needs altogether, which is what I think a lot of people do. They just ignore the need that they have or or, or get it through the back door like in (laughs) an unhealthy way. So I know for some people, their spouses are their like quote unquote best friends. And I know that there is, if that's your truth, cool. Um, and there is a particular level of intimacy and comfort that can come from having an exclusive partner that you live with. There, mm-hmm. There is nothing yes. like living with people. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and all that comes with it. But like conflating that with best friend isn't always helpful or accurate as an expectation. I think yeah. no matter how aligned we are with another person, there is just going to be something, some area in our lives that they cannot relate to or understand yep. as much as someone else can. And so like if you and your partner work in different kinds of jobs, your work colleagues are going to understand your work stress and issues better than your partner does. It doesn't mean that your partner can or won't offer support or be compassionate. They should be, but there's going to be a limit to how much they can relate and we shouldn't get frustrated by this fact. Instead, it's an opportunity to feel gratitude for those other people and communities in our lives that bring us a sense of belonging and being seen. And it honestly lets our partner off the hook a little bit too. Like I know when I come home from pole class and I've mastered something, Matt is happy, you know, but he has no idea what's involved in learning that. So, (laughs) but my pole classmates who I only see at pole, they're so happy for me and cheering me Uh on. And I, I, I love that. And I think, all of the, the part of all of this is knowing ourselves well in order to understand what our needs are as they change, because they will, being able to clearly communicate them to our partners. And this is a hard one for me, realizing that just because I state a need to you doesn't mean you're going to be able to fulfill it. Yeah, That's a hard one mm-hmm. because sometimes someone just cannot do it or won't. And I think in a healthy relationship, your partner should at least be able to affirm that you that your need is important and support you in finding a way to meet it. And that could be through a friendship or a group of people or a community or another romantic relationship. So 
finding connection outside of your relationship doesn't diminish what you share together and what mm-hmm. when insecurities or jealousy or, or FOMO comes up, talking through that together can actually bring you closer together if you're willing to name what you're feeling and have the other person hold that with compassion. And also, we all have to take responsibility for our own emotions. Mm. No one else can do that for you. No, you're so, you're so right. You know, I get something totally different from my close women friends than I do from Pat, and that is okay. And some of that is just due to longevity. I have female friends in my life who have known me since childhood or high school, and we've been with each other through a lot of just growth and change and difficult times and other relationships. And But there are also ways that we relate to each other as women that are just different and so important to me that I don't get at home. And I know that's kind of gender essentialist, but it's just true in some cases. There's the the shared experience of gender that can be really important in a friendship. And I used to feel really weird about that. Like, is it wrong to look outside my marriage to meet this particular set of emotional needs? But the fact that my friends and I don't live together We aren't co-parents. We don't do the business of life together. It means that the stakes of our friendships are just different. And I get to be a different person in my friendships than I am in my marriage. And I like that. I like that Mm. feeling. I'm not a better person or worse person, just a different person. And the same is true for Pat. He has the weirdest inside jokes and memories and stories with his best friends from childhood that aren't for me to understand. I've stopped trying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he's a different person around them sometimes than he is with me. And I love that he has interests outside of our marriage. Like right now, He is working on his pilot's license, and I'm so proud of him, but it is not something we're doing together. (laughs) I have no interest in it, (laughs) and I love that he comes home excited and tells me all about his landings or his first solo flight, just like you get to come home and talk about pole. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the people at his flight school are the ones who truly understand what he's doing and accomplishing, just like your pole classmates, you know? Mm-hmm. I can be supportive, but I don't necessarily get it. Like, after his first solo flight, they cut his t-shirt off. It's like a tradition. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> he can't. Re- he kind of explains it to me, but I still don't really get it. He had to bring an extra shirt that day. <laughs> That's so weird. It's so weird, but it's a thing. Okay. Yeah. So... I don't know. All that to say, I feel really lucky and grateful to have good friends in my life, you know, but I've known people who have almost no friends outside of their marriage. And I get it. It can be so hard to maintain friendships as an adult, especially when you're a parent and your life is basically work, kids, spouse, repeat. Mm -hmm. I have been reading a book that pertains to this that I think our listeners might like. It's called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends by Dr. Marissa Franco. And she has a chapter on why friendship matters. And I want to read this paragraph because I think it sums up everything we've been saying. 
Friendships have unique advantages. Friends, distinct from parents, do not expect us to live out their hopes and wants for us. With friends, distinct from spouses, we're not shackled with the insurmountable expectation of being someone's everything, their puzzle piece to completeness. And distinct from our children, we aren't the sole propagator of our friend's survival. Our ancestors lived in tribes where responsibility for one another was diffused among many. Friendship, then, is a rediscovery of an ancient truth we've long buried. It takes an entire community for us to feel whole. Mm. I just love that. I love that, too. And I also recently have been thinking about how I'm going to stop using the word friend so loosely Mm. because it means something really important to me. And... I'm more, I'm being more careful in who I call a friend and who I allow into that part of my heart because it is just as important as the other relationships Mm -hmm. in our Mm -hmm. lives. So I'm not going to use it as loosely, just like I wouldn't call some soul connection, like, oh, this is my other spouse, right? Like, it's special. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We need more language around relationships, but that's another topic. Yes. So (laughs) as we wrap up, I just want to say that in my experience, and it sounds like from yours too, freeing ourselves from these myths, as precious as they might feel to us, Mm -hmm. it's really essential to our long-term well-being individually and in our relationships. And sometimes it can feel so scary to go off script Mm -hmm. and realize there isn't a blueprint for creating the kind of relationship you want. At least you might not have access to one. But it's also really liberating and fortifying to figure this out with the people you love. So by all means, indulge in your favorite reality relationship show, if you have one or not. I know I'll watch the second season of The Ultimatum it's on. (laughs) But reminder to self to stay grounded in your actual reality when you do that. Okay. What about you? Any last thoughts? I think that's great advice. And I was thinking about whether or not I'd watch another season of The Ultimatum, and it got me wondering if I could design my own reality dating show, what would it look like? Honestly, I would love a reality version of The Golden Girls. (laughs) Yes. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like, yes, older women who live together and go out into the world and date and like come home and talk about their experiences and eat cheesecake if they want. But <laughs> yes, that be amazing? this would totally be doable too. like, think about all the yes. retirement communities. Come yes. on. Let's have yes. some representation of older people in these shows. Exactly. Exactly. And not real housewife style. I don't want billionaire no. women. I no. want just like average retiree women living together, hanging out with their besties, dating. <laughs> talking about it. I would watch that for I would watch as many seasons as they would create. <laughs> I think everyone would. I really hope Netflix is listening, but also I want credit for this idea. <laughs> okay. Let's see if we can pitch this to someone with influence. <laughs> I know. I love it. All right. Well, there is always more we can say, but we'll end it here. And as always, if you have something you'd like to contribute to the conversation, a question or something we missed, please let us know by emailing us at team at kindredspodcast.com or messaging us on Instagram. All right, Katie, I don't know what we've got planned for next time. I'm sure it will be great. <laughs> I will talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 